This episode is made possible by Armoire. I love genius companies founded by women, and Armoire is one of them. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days, and then when you're ready for new clothes, you just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. To me, Armoire Armoire solves so many issues I struggle with today, the biggest one being accumulation of stuff. Let's face it, women want to feel on trend and fresh in their clothes, so we like to shop for new clothes often. But I also get overwhelmed when I have too much to choose from, which happens after years of shopping. I forget what clothes I have and I end up wearing the same thing over and over. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothing for every occasion and then send it back. Whether you're planning your outfit for a date night, packing for a conference, or in need of a gown for a black tie event, you will be the best-dressed person in the room without ever having to brave a department store fitting room with those unflattering fluorescent lights again. Trust me, your overly cramped closet and the environment will thank you. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash heel. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash heel to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to The Heal Podcast. I'm Kelly Noonan-Gores, and every week I speak to the leading doctors, healers, spiritual teachers, and scientists to find out what is truly possible when it comes to healing. I also interview real people with extraordinary healing stories. My philosophy is what's possible for one is possible for all. On today's episode of The Heal Podcast, I interview Anita Morjani, the New York Times bestselling author of Dying to Be Me. I call Anita the poster child of hope and possibility because she has a remarkable story of spontaneously healing from end-stage cancer. After a four-year battle with lymphoma, Anita went into a coma, her organs were shutting down, she had visible tumors from her neck to her abdomen, and her body was no longer absorbing nutrition. The doctors told her family that she had mere hours to live. In those moments, Anita had a near-death experience and realized with total clarity why she had gotten the cancer, and after a conversation with the essence of her father, she woke up from her coma. Three weeks later, the cancer was gone. When I first heard Anita's story, I was so fired up and I was finally ready to move forward and make heal. Anita is living proof that so much more is possible when it comes to healing, and it is so deeply related to our consciousness and our beliefs. Join us today as we get into more details around her near-death experience, discover what she learned as a result, and discuss her new book, Sensitive is the New Strong. This episode is for anyone touched by cancer, anyone needing a large dose of hope, and for all the empaths out there that are looking for tools to help navigate this increasingly harsh world and step into their power and purpose. Let's dive in. Oh, Anita, thank you so much for coming back and uh, speaking with me about your amazing story. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And it's lovely to see you again, Kelly. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, as always, the universe, you know, is is winking at me and, and just always providing because I wasn't aware that you have this amazing book that was written for, for people like me. <laughs> And it's called Sensitive is the New Strong. And man, oh man, it is exactly uh, what I need to be learning right now. So we will get to that for the second half of our conversation. I would love to, we were only able to include a, a snippet of your story, kind of an overview of your story in the film Heal. But, you know, when I read Dying to Be Me, however many years ago, I want to say six years ago, you know, really like it was really the final energetic crack that was like, okay, this, 
Anita embraces, she embodies possibility. She is just the embodiment of, of the intention of heal. And, and so uh, I think today it's so powerful just to kind of give an overview of your story, uh, the near-death experience and what, and the shift in consciousness and what, you know, shot you on this new path and work you're doing today. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So just um, an overview of my story is that in 2002, I was diagnosed with lymphoma, which progressed over a period of four years. And I had tried everything. So, so I think what a lot of people are very surprised to hear is that I did try a lot of different natural, naturopathic treatments. And many of them just didn't work for me, but it was later, much later, we'll get into why. And I found out why, but, but many of them didn't work for me. And then I had watched people around me, my own age dying from cancer, and they were getting like the best Western medical treatments that money can buy in the most expensive hospitals in the world. And from where I was sitting, looking at them, they were just getting sicker and sicker. And so it made me really, really fear Western medicine. By the time I was ready to turn to Western medicine, because I could tell nothing was working, I was dying. And so I said to the doctors, okay, go ahead, do whatever you have to do. They said, it's too late. And they basically told my husband that I only had three months to live. And so what happened is that even though I did get chemotherapy and everything, so my body was so weak, it was emaciated. It was, I weighed 85 pounds. At that point, they even told me your body can't even handle the chemotherapy because I had tumors the size of uh, golf balls all around my neck from the base of my skull, all around my neck under my arms, in my chest, all the way down into my abdomen, all over my lymphatic system. So the cancer had metastasized and had spread throughout. It was in my breasts, under my arms, everywhere. I had stopped absorbing nutrition. And so I weighed about 85 pounds. My muscles had completely atrophied. So I couldn't walk. I couldn't even hold my head up. My, my head was hanging down like this on my neck. I didn't even have the strength in my neck to keep my head up. My lungs were filled with fluid. So when I would lie flat, I would choke on my own fluid. And I was, and I couldn't sleep because of that. And I was in so much pain and so much discomfort and so much fear that I was absolutely miserable. I was afraid of dying. I was afraid of the disease. I was afraid of the treatments. I was just, there was, and you know, I just could not, my mind just could not rest and my body could not rest because even when I would lie down, I couldn't sleep. I would choke. I had to be propped up. Mm -hmm. So I reached a point on February the 1st of 2006 where I just let go. I kind of said to the universe, I'm done. I'm, I'm really done. And then on February the 2nd, I didn't wake up. I was in a coma. My husband was frantic. He called, he called the doctors. I was being cared for at home. And so I was rushed to the hospital. And the doctors told my family that these were my final hours. And so basically they ran some tests and they said, my organs were now shutting down. And they said, my kidneys had already shut down and all the whatever was building up in my body and, you know, whatever it is. And they said that this was it and I was gone. And even though my body wasn't physically dead, they actually said, nobody's home. She's gone. She's not in there. She's not coming back. Hmm. But unbeknownst to everybody around me, I was actually feeling amazing. I had left my body and I could see all this play out. I was aware of everything that was happening. And I felt incredible. I felt light. I felt free. I felt liberated. The only thing is, I wanted my family to know how good I felt. And, you know, and I didn't have that difficulty breathing. And I didn't, because my mobility had come in the form of a wheelchair previously. It was like, 
I was just, wow. I I felt better than I had ever felt in my physical life before. And then I, I became aware that I was going through the dying process. And uh, even though I was aware of everything that was happening in the hospital physically around my body, I was also aware that there were deceased loved ones, people I loved who had crossed over, who were there to greet me. And all I felt from them, and in fact, from the universe in general or source or whatever we want to call it, call it all I felt was just this beautiful and pure, unconditional love, or I should call it divine love, because there's no such thing as conditional love, because if it's conditional, it's not love. So technically, we shouldn't need to say unconditional love, but it was a kind of love that I had never experienced in my physical life before. It was like I didn't have to do anything to be worthy or deserving of this love. I I was loved just because I existed. And I had spent a lifetime trying to prove myself so that I could be worthy of love. And only in death did I realize, oh, I didn't need to prove myself. I'm loved just because I exist, Mm. but I never loved myself. And so I, and, and so much happened on that side, which we can unravel. But basically I re I reached a point where I was given a choice. Uh, So I was greeted by all my loved ones, including my dad who had passed away 10 years prior and my uh, my best friend who had died of cancer and she was the same age as me and i was able to communicate with them and communication is not done through our uh, the way we do it here because we don't have vocal cords we don't have biology we don't have a body you know even we don't even have vision the way we have it here here with your eyesight you have to kind of focus on things on that side it's like 360 degree awareness just pure awareness and communication is done just telepathically. It's like imprinted. It's like you just know what the other soul, the other spirit wants you to know. So it was just incredible. And I reached a point where I was given a choice as to whether um, I wanted to come back or not. No part of me wanted to come back because over here I was suffering. You know, my body was sick. My family was suffering because I was sick. Uh, And it was so amazing on that side. But what then happened was that I started to understand why it was that I got sick. And I understood how it was that every thought and every decision I had made prior to that had led me to that point of dying in that hospital bed. And I realized that now that I knew what I knew, if I chose to go back, my body would heal and it would heal very quickly. And that was when I felt my dad, and in fact, my dad and my best friend encouraging me to go back. And, and they said that now that you know the truth, you need to go back and live your life fearlessly. And I felt that my dad wanted me to know that, that I had gifts waiting for me and that I would be wasting the gifts if I didn't go back. So that's when I made the decision to come back. And, and it was in those moments, literally, that I started opening my eyes from the coma. And uh, I'd been in the coma for a day and a half. Um, and I started opening my eyes. <clears throat> and my family were really surprised and pleasantly surprised and so happy. And they called the doctor. And the doctor told them not to raise their hopes because I was still critical And then I started telling them things that I had seen. You know, I said, oh, that's the doctor that was removing the fluid from my lungs while I was in the coma and this. And they took these tests and they were like, how did you know you were in a coma? And I said, oh, I could see. And I said, isn't that the doctor that said I won't even make it through the night? And they said, yeah, but he said it outside the room. So that's when they realized something had transpired. But for quite a few days, I was groggy. I had one foot on each side. But in five days, the tumors had shrunk by 60%. And between, in between three to five weeks, they were having trouble finding any trace of cancer in my body. And they released me from the hospital on March the 9th of 2006, 
which was five weeks after going into the coma, they released me to go home and live my life cancer free. Oh my gosh. I mean, honestly, like it, everything about your story just resonates. It's, it's, and you talk about this in your, in your book, just this, this knowing of truth and your experience about source and where we go from here and unconditional love, which again is redundant because love is just all encompassing and, you know, divine. And I just, uh, your story gives me so much hope and there's so many questions I want to ask, but I want to touch just real quickly on, on the relationship with your father, because this is, this is what I, I constantly use it as a reminder when I'm having conflict with someone in this earthly realm. And then I go, okay, on the other side, our souls, like we're all loving and there's none of this judgment and fear and conditioning and hatred or whatever. Yes. Um, so just touch on the tumultuous relationship, just because of cultural reasons or whatever uh, that you and your dad had in life. And then how all of that dissolved and how just this, this pure love that was between you, like, how did you translate that? Oh, that was incredible. So basically, <clears throat> when I was growing up, I had a very tumultuous relationship with my dad. He was a very typical. So my culture, my parents are Indian and my dad had this very patriarchal approach to life. He didn't get he was a very hands off dad. He he provided really well for us. We never went without but he was never engaged with us. And he would like, if I was a child and having a tantrum, he could not tolerate that. He would actually get angry and lose his temper. That's the kind of father he was. He would also get angry at my mom. And so as I grew up, I was not allowed to date boys. He wanted to, uh, he wanted me to have an arranged marriage, which is within, you know, which is what the expectation of my culture. But the thing is, the trouble is, I didn't grow up in India. They left India even before I was born. I grew up outside of India. I grew up, I was born in Singapore. I grew up in Hong Kong. Then they sent me to a British school where all my peers were all uh, British kids. They were all from the UK. And so here I was growing up in a British school system, learning about British pop culture, totally immersed in British culture, and then my parents are trying to groom me for an arranged marriage. And so I was like really into Cindy Lauper and I was dressing like her back then. And she was like, yeah, I was like a huge Cindy Lauper fan. And, <laughs> and so, and, and my parents are trying me to get in, wear Indian clothes and, and wear the bindi on my forehead and present myself to prospective grooms. And I rebelled against it. And then one day, you know, as I, as I grew into my early 20s, all my Western friends, my British friends went off to college and they, uh, and they had careers. I wasn't allowed to go off to college because it would remove me further from getting a prospective groom. In our culture, our culture is um, uh, very, there's a lot of gender disparity, let's say. And women are rewarded for how valuable they are to the men in their community. So you are rewarded for being subservient to the men in your community. And that's a terrible way to grow up. It's terrible. So, but you don't realize it. That's all you know. It's invisible to you. It's, it's what informs your thinking. And so that was my, my background. But then when I was at, you know, when growing up with these British kids, they had different values. So I was always like, I want to be like them. I want what they have. And so there was this conflict that my dad and I were always locking horns. And to him, I was uh, this, I guess, you know, like he really saw me as a rebellious, disobedient, going against the culture, a person, child, young woman. And so when I was in my early 20s, uh, I, I became very lonely because my Indian friends had all got married at starting from age 17. The first one of my Indian friends got married at 17, then another one at 19. And by the time I was 21, my Indian friends were all married. My British friends had all gone off to university and gone off with, uh, on their careers. So I relented. I gave in, agreed to an arranged marriage. 
and then realized that they were also from a very patriarchal, you know, the, the, the same sort of thing. I was expected to learn to cook and clean. They made it very clear to me that I would not be allowed to work. I would not be allowed to study. I thought I wanted to at least go to university or college while I'm married. They said, absolutely no. You're going to serve his parents. You're going to go to the temple twice a week. You're going to do that. They, they had it all planned for me. You're going to wear Indian clothes, blah, blah, blah. So three days before the wedding, I realized I can't go through with this. And I ran away. I brought a lot of shame to my family, all the Indian, the entire Indian community all over the whole world. And this was the days before the internet. They told my family that no parents would ever let their son marry me after what I had done. They wouldn't come near me because for fear that I would do it again. So yeah, I was ostracized. And so that was my history with my dad. I always felt I had disappointed him as a daughter. But when I was on the other side, all I felt from my dad was pure love, pure unconditional love. And I realized that just as I had been a victim of my culture, he was also a victim of his culture. And that, and the only way he knew how to show love was to be strict with me and to do what he knew how to do. And I, and, and the interesting thing is that a lot of the fears I had in my life that led up to me being the person I was who got the cancer all of that was because of the upbringing I had because of my dad. So in life, my dad is the one who set me up for all those fears. But in death, my dad is the one who released me. He was the one that said, you need to go and live your life fearlessly. Uh. So it was like a full circle. Hey, do any of you out there feel like you could use more energy during your day, but you can't do more than one cup of caffeine lest you feel jittery and anxious like I do? At some point, we need to look at the root cause of fatigue. It turns out that the major factors of low energy are lack of nutrition, poor sleep, and chronic stress. Organifi creates delicious superfood blends to help solve for all of these problems and makes it convenient to work into our busy lives. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with organic ingredients, no fillers, less than three grams of sugar per serving, and you can mix them all easily with water. Organifi is also my favorite source of adaptogens. Adaptogens are herbs and mushrooms that balance hormones and help you deal with stress in a healthier way. If you're feeling tired, these compounds give you a boost of energy. If you're stressed, they help you return to a natural state of calm. They literally help you adapt to the stress of life. Organifi has so many incredible products that support your immune system, your liver, healthy glowy skin, and so much more. I love Organifi Green Juice, which has all of the essential superfoods and a clinical dose of the adaptogen ashwagandha. I also love Organifi Gold, a superfood tea that supports rest and relaxation so you can wake up feeling refreshed. I make mine like a golden milk latte with some warm nut milk right before bed, and boy, is it delish. Organifi takes takes pride in offering the best tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. So you can experience Organifi's high quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com slash Heal Podcast and use code Heal Podcast for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com backslash Heal Podcast and use code Heal Podcast for 20% off any item. Hi, I'm Pia Berengini, the creative director of LPA, an entrepreneur, a wife, and a dog mom based in Los Angeles. This is my new podcast, Everything is the Best, where we basically ask interesting people, how did you go from zero to yacht? I'm always curious how the hell people became successful, and I figured you would be too. Get on the internet with me. Let's laugh, let's cry, let's overshare, and let's get inspired to live our best lives. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. It's all for you, baby. Thanks for listening. Love you, mean it. So a couple things I've been wanting to ask. I mean, it seems like all of our fears are kind of one level above of our fear of death. I mean, we, we're, we're the survival mode. We, we push back on life and we, we fear our, this vulnerability that we're in the physical body and could die at any moment, you know, and this, yes. this, this like background stress that we're all fearing because we all kind of have this collective belief unless you're enlightened, you know, or unless you had your experience. So how do you think it's 
because you felt so magnanimous in this other realm, I imagine that you don't fear death anymore. How, how, like, what do you look at this life as? Is it a lesson? Is it a classroom? Is it a, you know, with, for people dealing with challenges and like your friend who didn't survive cancer, like, what does it all mean? How can we shift our perspective without having a taste of that to really trust that this, we don't need to take life so seriously. This, our challenges, our lessons that our soul needs to learn. Or what, what, what have you learned or what do you feel? What's okay. your new perspective? There is a lot to unpack there, but let's start with this. So first of all, you don't need to go through what I went through to get this. And that's why I share what I share. Uh, in terms of why are we here? I feel that we're here to experience, to experience life. I don't really treat it as a school, but learning is inevitable. Suffering is also inevitable. Learning is inevitable, but we're here to experience. But our whole life doesn't have to be that of suffering. It takes a shift to kind of see it as an experience and to and to how do you say, to embrace the experience and to find joy in it. So to give you an example, after I came back, what we found is that because I had been sick for four years and my husband hadn't been going to work, he lost his job. And so we were so we were broke. We were uh, broke and couldn't pay our rent. But I was well, you know, I was I was healthy. I was released. I had this beautiful gift of life. But now we were both and I hadn't worked for all these years, but we were both now jobless and with our lives ahead of us. And we didn't know what to do with it. And what was really interesting. So we had rent to pay and bills to pay because I had just come back from the other side. I, if, if I had not had the near death experience and if it had been 10 years prior and we were both jobless and I had bills and rent, I would have been totally stressed out because I had just come back from the other side and the cancer had healed. And I understood what the meaning of life at that point. And I, what I felt was, thank you for giving me an opportunity, another chance at life and to experience what it feels like to be broke. That's what it felt like. Do you see the shift? It's like, yes. thank you for this experience. Now let me see how I can best handle this. But everything is just an experience. So that's one thing that really shifted for me at that point. And what I also realized is that in the same way that I can experience being broke and relish it just for the experience and to see what I'd learned from it, I can also experience being wealthy and abundant and relish that. So there was no judgment from the other side. Like we sometimes have a lot of judgment towards people who either sometimes you have judgment towards people who are really poor and homeless and we think of them as losers and we blame them for it. Or we have a lot of judgment towards people who are rich and say, oh my God, it's greed that makes you rich and corporate greed. There's no judgment as long it's, it's, you know, it's the people who are judging that are actually suffering mm. and pushing what they judge away from them. Or they're so focused on it. If they're so focused on not being poor, they draw it to them. If they're so focused on hating rich people, they actually push away abundance. So, so it's this judgment that causes us to suffer but I realized I'm here to just experience and drink in the experience. And so what started to happen is I started to have that way of looking at life. My life started to shift and it starts to shift to kind of meet you where you're at. And that's when things started to happen where, yeah, we were broke. Yeah, we couldn't pay the rent. Yeah, we had to move and we had to go through all of that. But it was like, oh, wow, look at this experience. This is how people cope. This is, And it taught me a whole new way to live and to appreciate a whole new way of living. And then Wayne Dyer discovers my story and takes me out into the stratosphere. And it's like, oh, here's a whole <laughs> other new way to live. You know, so it's like that. It's kind of becomes a ride and not a, not a oh, I got to work hard. I got to do. That's the part that leaves you when you've had a death experience that, oh, I got to do this. Oh, I got to do that. I got to please these people. I got to meet this goal and this criteria. And I got to get ahead of these people. 
I don't do that. I don't compete with people. I just go at my pace. I really do go at my pace. And when people try to compete with me, I'm like, no, you do you. I do me. You can compete with me, but I'm not even in the race. So it's a very different way of looking at life. And I'd like to unpack it further in that previously, prior to the NDE experience, I was afraid of everything everything. I was afraid of death. I was afraid of cancer. I was afraid of not pleasing people. Remember, I grew up in a culture where I had to please authority figures, men, fathers, you know, uh, and um, I was afraid of not being good enough. I was afraid of cancer. I was just, I was literally afraid of everything. So what does that mean when, and you know, I was afraid of being poor. That means that the driving force of everything you do is fear. So every choice I make, every decision I make is made from fear. So I used to be a health fanatic. I say health fanatic, but actually I was obsessed with illness long before I was diagnosed with cancer. And why was I a health fanatic? Not because I loved my body and loved my life, but because I feared illness. I wanted to do everything I could to not get cancer. So my focus was on cancer. I would take jobs because I wanted to do everything I could to not be poor. You know, so so in other words, the question to ask yourself, have you created a life based on fear? Like the life you're living now, everything that you've done, everything you are at this moment, your life at this point, is it made up of decisions based on fear? Or is your life today where it is today as a result of decisions made from a place of love and joy, a love for yourself, a love for your life, a love for the people around you, a desire to be joyful? Those are the questions to ask yourself. My life was built every the, where I was at that point was based on fear-based decisions. This is why I said, you know, that all the therapies didn't work for me because my focus was still on cancer. It was always on cancer. I don't focus on cancer anymore. After I healed, like people would say to me things like, oh, you need to join this cancer charity and this support for cancer. And I say, nope, I don't do cancer. I don't support it. I don't focus on it. I focus on well-being and joy and love and all those things because that's where what I what I want to create. Oh my gosh, there's such a like valuable nugget in what you just said. It is so subtle, but it will shift your life. Like and and I remember, you know, if you if you go to the gym because you you fear that if you don't go to the gym you'll gain weight, and then you fear that if you gain weight you won't attract the love of your life or whatever it is. That's a very different motivation and energy from I'm going to the gym because it feeds, it helps me release toxins. It helps me release endorphins, feel better. It's a good thing for me. It's a shuttle shift, but that intention, one makes you feel good and energized. One makes you feel drained. If you're doing things and always showing up for your partner because you don't want to upset the narcissist or you want to keep the peace, that kind of energy and giving is draining and will eventually make you sick. If you're showing up for your partner because you love them and you want to enhance their life, but you're, you're at the same time, you're not denying the love for yourself and you're still having healthy boundaries and taking care of yourself, that kind of giving feels good. So it's, it's literally the energy and the motivation behind what you do and why you do it that can change everything. A hundred percent. That is exactly it. And it's the same, even, you know, when you take care of yourself, when you're young, like, let's say if you're in your twenties and you uh, love to, to look good and you dress up, what's the motivation behind it? Is it because you're scared you'll get rejected by guys or is it because you just love how joyful it makes you feel to wear makeup and dress up? You know, it's, it's all of it is what is the motivation behind it? Unfortunately, <clears throat> our, um, our paradigm, our culture teaches us to choose from a place of fear every step of the way. Everything from our school systems that teach us that we need to study because we don't want to fail, because we need to get into a good college. It's always a fear 
of not getting into a better college, um, not getting the results. And, and so we compete and with everybody else. We don't find our own gifts. We don't take time and find out what brings us joy and wh what are our own gifts. It's all about getting into the system and getting ahead, getting ahead, because we have this fear of being left behind. And then we go out and look for a mate or a spouse. And if you're a woman, it's that whole thing, that fear of my body clock is running out. I got to have babies before my body clock runs out and before I can't have babies anymore. And so again, it's this fear. It's not this, oh, I really want to have a baby, you know? So mm -hmm. we are just driven by fear. Even our governments, our medical system, medical system focused on the fear of illness. What do our doctors do? First thing, they look for illness. Even our so-called wellness practices are not about how to stay well and healthy and joyful. No, it's about going in and looking for cancer and looking for disease and heart disease and then saying, okay, you don't have heart disease. You don't have diabetes. You don't have cancer. Off you go. You're healthy. That's not what healthy is. Healthy means being emotionally joyful and, you know, having it's, it's being healthy emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. And here's the thing that I learned on the other side. If you are healthy spiritually, if you have a strong connection and you know you have a purpose and you have a desire to live and you feel connected, you are far more likely to be healthy physically. Mm. That side is so important. That is what drives you to then get healthy. And if you feel joy for life, you want to live long. If you have a purpose for life, you actually want to feel good and you want to feel well. And that's why you take care of yourself. And it starts with really, you know, I call it self-love. That's the simple term. But to me, self-love means really loving all of you. That means your, your soul who is here having this journey and taking care of every aspect of you and, and allowing your soul to express itself through you. Absolutely. And that, that was two of the things that were the essential key factors of healing and Kelly Turner's research that specifically had to do with cancer. But like you say, it's not about the cancer. It's about health in general. I mean, the, the 10 key factors to healing, I think apply to any chronic illness or imbalance or dis-ease. And two of them are, um, you know, uh, f having strong reasons for living, having a purpose, and then also social support, that human connection, you know, this fear causes separation and really enhances this illusion that you and I are separate. When of course, all of that is stripped away. We're in the other realm. We're, we're connected. We have this 360 degree awareness and we communicate, we have knowings, there's love, there's no judgment. It's full connection on the other realm. And then we come here and it's this illusion of separation that is enhanced by fear. We see this very, a lot of us see this right now, what's happening in the world is, is, you know, with technology. <clears throat> and if you saw the social dilemma, they feed yes, on fear. It's what advertisers feed on fear. The mainstream media, the news feeds on fear. You know, what bleeds leads, but they just want your attention That's so they have to tap into your fear and enhance your fear so that you stay glued to your device so that they can sell more advertising to you and play in your fear so that you buy the product because you fear if you don't buy the product, you're not going to get the man or heal or whatever it is, you know? So exactly, exactly. We live in a paradigm that is pathologically fearful because fear sells. And so my message is see through that. Don't buy it. Fear sells, but don't buy it. Don't be yeah. fooled. If you are among the millions of men and women impacted by hair loss or weakened thinning hair, know that you are not alone. Join thousands of men and women who have taken back control of their health and regained confidence with Nutrafol. As you know, I'm all about natural health. So when I find a product that is clean, natural, and proven effective through clinical trials, I get really excited. Nutrafol is a physician-formulated hair supplement that is 100% drug-free. They use medical-grade botanicals in consistently effective dosages so you get the most reliable results. How does it work? Well, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the five root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism. And I am all about a root cause. 
pun intended. No matter what stage you are in life, Nutrafol has a formula for you. I know for me, I had all sorts of wonky hair thinning after giving birth, which is why I was thrilled to see that Nutrafol offers support for new mothers with their Nutrafol postpartum. I've been taking Nutrafol for a couple of months now, and I see new growth popping up all over my scalp. And my hair colorist told me my hair feels thicker and stronger than ever. People also report that Nutrafol's powerful ingredients also improve their overall well-being, including more restful sleep, less stress, and better skin, nails, and libido. You can grow thicker, healthier hair by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code HEAL to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it is only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, you get free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code HEAL. Which brings us to this next uh, topic of your your book, Sensitive is the New Strong. I have, I think because the world is in the state that it's in and the sphere is so high. And I mean, I, I you talk about empaths and the power of empaths in an increasingly harsh world. And what I'm feeling right now is, is that hypersensitivity. And I've always known I'm a highly sensitive person and I assumed I was an empath, but reading your book and taking your quiz, I'm like, whoa, this is what I've known. And I I get drained so easily. I literally can't watch the news. It's too violent. Too. It's too depressing. And I can't even watch, you know, we just had Halloween and we have these like gratuitously violent horror slasher films that they're freely advertising on television that is like way more than the human psyche can handle, especially if you're an empath. And I have yes. to, cha- I have to look away. I get physically ill and that's just a commercial. Imagine someone watching the movie, you know, and now we have yep. this squid game situation that's on Netflix that everybody's watching and everybody's talking about. And I'm, I know in my heart, I cannot watch that. I know the premise of the show and I cannot watch it. I would it just, it, it breaks my heart too much. So I'm increasingly sensitive. And I think it's because what's happening is that the energy of the world is really, the fear is bubbling. I mean, it's boiling, right? It's the, it's a, it's like you said, it's a path a lot. The fear is, is just coming to the surface and, and in yes. outright chaos. And the fear is so evident on both sides, whether you just take the um, example of COVID, you know, on one side, there's people that really fear dying of the disease, which is a valid fear. And on the other side, there's really people fearing, you know, the government's reaction to it and losing their freedom. These are two valid fears on the two different sides of the same coin and neither side can, they're just getting angry at each other, you know? Yes. So this book for anybody out there that thinks they're highly sensitive or an empath, you have to read this book because it's giving me tools and understanding. And I, I, I got to dive into my list, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your book and what, what caused you to write it while I get my notes ready here? Okay. So I, of course, realized I was an empath. I didn't know I was before the NDE and when I was sick and when I had cancer, but it was after that I realized that somebody once said to me, Hey, I think you're an empath. And I had not heard that word. So I looked it up. And then I started to read up on it and I realized, wow, yeah, I am an empath. And so then just started to kind of uh, not just research, but feel into it. Like once I became aware that I was an empath, I started to realize that not everybody thinks like me. And then I was able to identify that, yeah, of course, they're not going to get what I'm trying to say because they don't have this particular quality of feeling what other people feel. That's why they can watch violent films. That's why certain corporates can function purely by duping people because people like you and I and other empaths, we can't do anything that would hurt or harm another person. It just, it immobilizes us if we think that, oh, I'm earning money, you know, off the backs of poor people, we we wouldn't be able to sleep at night. But, and so there was a time when I was, I would feel that, how do people do that? How do people, you know, like, why is the world like that? And, and, but when I discovered I was an empath, that's when I started to realize, oh, not everybody feels this way. That's why they can do that. They are missing a certain element. And it's not even that they're missing it. The majority of the planet don't have this, this, this extra piece that we call 
empath or, and I want to differentiate between empathy and being an empath. This is important because empathy is something that most people can learn. And I will say most, I won't say all, um, because there are still some people I would say at the bottom end of the scale who maybe are, I guess, sociopathic, that it's just the way they're wired. And, but most people can learn empathy. And that's different from being an empath. Empathy is something that comes from experiencing something or learning something and knowing, oh, so as an example of learning empathy is if you were to tell somebody, I would like you to uh, pretend that you're a paraplegic and, and use a wheelchair for two weeks and you're not allowed to get on the floor and stand. And you, you give them this exercise of this game and you say, every time you stand up, you're going to be docked. And so I want you to navigate the world, go to the bathroom, go out, take public transport, whatever. And if they do that for two weeks, they are going to be able to empathize with every single wheelchair person. And if we could do this for kids at school and have them experience these kinds of things, they would become geniuses at developing technology for people who do have actual mm. uh, disabilities. But anyway, that is empathy, which can be taught and should be taught at schools. Being an empath is something else. It's somebody who is at the extreme end of being a highly sensitive person where you literally feel the energy of the people that are around you and you may not even be aware of it. So you could walk into a room where people are angry and they might, maybe they won't even say a word, or you could spend the day with somebody who is upset about something and they don't even need to say a word, but you feel what they're feeling. It's like you entrain yourself to the people around you. And this is what empaths do. So you have someone whose mood is down here. Empath comes in, they feel that mood and they entrain themselves to that person. And they don't even realize they've done it. They walk away and they're now down here and they're like, huh, mm. why do I feel so low? So when you have this fear, this pathological fear going on in the world, empaths feel it mm. and it brings them down unless they're aware they're doing it. And that is why I share what I share. I want empaths to know this is what you do. And the world needs you to not do that. The world needs you to hold your light up there and shine your light because the world needs empaths more than ever right now. I'm sure you know by now that the human body is an amazing superorganism made up of not only trillions of human cells, but microbes too. Our mental health, physical health, and immunity depend on a healthy balance of good bugs and bad bugs, most of which reside in our gut. And unfortunately, in our modern world, we are bombarded every day by things like chemicals, pollution, stress, and medication that kill off our good bacteria. No wonder we are sicker than ever and anxiety and depression are out of control. The good news is we can learn a lot about our gut health and how to restore balance through proper testing. Keen Health is an amazing new brand that just launched that takes the guesswork out of gut health. Backed by science and trusted by experts, Keen likes to think of their brand as the GOAT for at-home testing. Their in-depth microbiome tests give one-of-a-kind results with actionable takeaways that can bring about measurable changes to your health. The Keen Gut Plus Kit, for example, will give you deeper insight about the status of your gut microbiome and recommendations on how to improve your gut health and overall wellness. They also offer the Keen Gene Test, which reveals info about more than 100 different gene traits related to health, nutrition, appearance, sensitivity, and more. And remember, if possible, I always encourage you to go over your results with a naturopath, a functional medicine doctor, or an integrative doc to make sure you get the most comprehensive guidance for moving forward. Knowledge is power. And by investing in a keen health test, you are investing in knowing yourself better. So stop guessing and start testing. Visit keenhealth.com and get 20% off with code HEAL. That's K-E anhealth.com code heal. So funny. I had this, I dated these two guys before my, my husband and, and they had tendencies towards negativity. 
And, you know, again, like you say in the book, you know, people pleasing is a very, uh, telling sign that you, you may be an empath. Yes. Um, and I've, I've talked about this in many of the episodes and it's, it feels better. Cause I feel such like so weak when I say people pleasing, cause I have over time healed so much and I've developed, you know, my strength and stepped into my power, but I still have this tendency to want to keep the peace. I, and, and I'm hypervigilant and I know what everybody wants and I tune into how they feel and I want to make everything better, you know, and so much of what your book talks about, like even that you wrote a chapter on money, you know, and I've, I've worked with my own perceptions around money. It's changed my financial state. And now that I have an abundance of, of wealth and I'm so blessed, you know, I do have this guilt that I just want to, you know, part of me wants to give it all away because I feel that that is why I have abundance and it's, it feels so good to be able to help people. But then part of me like wants, there's still that guilt of like, you know, wanting to give it all away because who am I to have this much wealth? You know what I mean? Yes. That's a typical (laughs) empath feeling. And that's why empaths find it really hard to hold on to money. But, and this is why people who are not empaths are able to actually exploit empaths and they're able to create corporates that are based on greed. Whereas what we need is for empaths to heal their relationship with money so that they can make money and create conscious corporations. And we we need empaths at the head of wealth and abundance because if an empath, if the world was run by empaths, and I truly believe this, if the global leaders were empaths, we would eliminate world hunger and wars in five minutes. We really would. We really would. And I think that's, you know, the essence of what the Dalai Lama said is that the world would be saved by the Western woman. I think, you know, could be just switched in the words. The world would be saved by the empaths, you know, yes. because, and it, and it's just like you said, this book gives us tools so that we can step into our power, mostly out of awareness to what our tendencies are. And, and, you know, like we talk about and heal our subconscious beliefs, our perception colors, this lens, and to understand that people look through the lens that they don't even know that they have based on their belief systems, their marinade, you call it of yes. cultural beliefs they've adopted. We all have different marinades. And you look through this lens and you believe that your perception of reality is reality. But you have to understand, and we're seeing this right now as the world is polarized more than ever, that both sides or all sides, everybody's looking through a lens, believing that their reality is truth and that these other side, other 50% of people are crazy. And the, the, the bottom line is we just both have different lens and different belief systems. And exactly. You really get it. So I, I love this book. And, and like you said, the, the reason, you know, the, about just feeling energy, like I, I need solitude. I need a whole day to myself to shake off other people's energy and, and reconnect to myself. My husband is like amazing high function. He's so, he's so empathic. He's the most generous, large hearted human being, crazy energy. He needs about two, two hours maybe of solitude. I need like two to three days, you know? <laughs> so everybody's got different, you know, scales of, of, of how much they take on. But I used to see it just to finish the story of the two people I dated before. I used to see it as a buoy. I was a buoy and I was constantly being like pulled under, like trying to pull them to the surface because they just, their tendencies, their lens, their marinade brought them down to the depths. And that just, your book validates that, you know, we, we attract these kind of people until we become aware and then we can step into our power and use our, our, these, these gifts that we've been given for good and for service. Oh gosh. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's, I am, uh, I mean, this is such a great interview because you really spot on get even the subtle things that I'm trying to get across. And, and one of the reasons why empaths are people pleasers to begin with is because you're not aware that you're feeling everybody's energy around you and you're kind of in training to them. So you go out of your way to get them to feel good because if they don't feel good, you don't feel good. You need them to feel that so you can feel that. And so that's why empaths 
it's, you know, the transition for an empath to become a people pleaser. It's just, yeah, because we need the people around us to feel good. Otherwise, we feel guilty being in joy when they're struggling and suffering. Oh my so. God, this is the biggest aha I've ever received in my life. It's true. If if I want everybody around me to feel good because I'm uncomfortable when they don't feel good because then my energy is out of whack and because I'm in training to their, their yes. imbalanced vibrations or lower frequency or what have you, not out of judgment, but just where their 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 thoughts and negativity and fears are if they're if they're living from a fear lens. And then also if I'm feeling like I had this experience during COVID. So many people are suffering. And of course, I have my whole understanding about the human immune system and biology and virology from my layperson perspective, but I've done research for the past 15 years on this stuff. So I had a little bit, I didn't have the same fears as a lot of people. And I just focused on keeping myself well. And I enjoyed the actual, you know, solitude because of the shutdown of a lot of the social thing. But I I also was struggling because I, I'm like, who am I to share my joy on social media or my health when so many people in the world are suffering? And, you know, so I was conflicted and this is, this is really taken a toll because I'm like, I, I don't think that the purpose of life is to sh- dampen down our light and our joy and our, our vibration just so others don't, others exactly. you know, feel bad about this situation. So I'm really struggling with this and your book is helping so much. Thank you. I'm so glad the world needs your light more than ever. So stay in the light. And and I think what also people don't always realize is that, so let's say you have these people down here and you're an empath and you're like, oh, I got to make them feel good. You know, so you automatically entrain if you're not aware. Once you're aware, you stop doing that. But when you're not aware, you entrain to them and then you go out of your way to please them, please them, please them. And what ends up happening is that because you please them, please them, they have no incentive to get better because they've always got you to do all this for them, if you know what I mean. They have no incentive to to uplift themselves because you're constantly there to help them through their problems, their issues, their obstacles. And when you do that, what happens is other people around see that, oh my gosh, she's someone that's always there for me when I need a shoulder to cry on, when I have problems. And so that you attract. And so all these people who are down at that level flock to you. And so you end up always being at that level until Mm. you become aware that, oh my God, I don't need to operate at this level. Because if I do, all I'm going to do is attract other people who just want me to constantly please them and be their doormat. Oh my gosh. Yes. 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 So much. Yes. So you said something earlier and I just, because again, I'm hyper aware and I'm very wanting everybody to feel not, you know, accepted and whole. I think you said something, there's like 20% empaths or whatever this number is. It's probably impossible to know, but you said not everybody, they're missing something. But is it more like they're just, is there, there's got to be a sliding scale of empathhood and sensitivity. Yes. And there's a reason that there's a bulk of people that they're just not in this lifetime to feel these certain things. They have other gifts and faculties to share that just the, this intuitive connection and, and empathy is just not their gift. Is that correct? Or it's yes, this is how I see it. So the way I see it is if you take a sliding scale. So at one end of the, of the spectrum, you have the full-blown empaths like us who actually feel, who just feel what everyone feels. And an empath is somebody who is hyper-aware, who never wants to hurt anybody. And we struggle with feeling guilty if people are struggling. And so, you know, and so it goes down along the sliding scale. So there are people who are less of an empath, but they're just highly sensitive, which is also great. You don't absorb what other people are feeling, but you're still highly sensitive to what other people are feeling. And um, a lot of these people, they make really good healthcare workers and frontline emergency workers because you jump in to help people, you know what they're feeling and you're really good at it, but you don't walk away from it feeling their pain. So, so you've got all these like really sensitive people and you keep going down the scale and there's a lot of people like in the, in the middle who can get, who get influenced either way. They're like easily influenced by their surrounding cultural 
paradigm. And so then as you go down the scale, you, you know, and most of these people in the middle, the majority of the people, so it's like a bell curve as normal. So the majority of the people are easily taught empathy if it is taught to them. Mm. But if ruthlessness is taught to them, that is what they easily learn. They are what we call, I guess, but they are basically the, the general population that are being educated in schools. And then at the other end of the scale, as you go down the scale, there are very, very, very few people at that end of the scale who are what we call narcissists and psychopaths and sociopaths. Mm. There's not that many. And that's the thing. The majority of the population are not narcissists and psychopaths and sociopaths. But here's where the problem comes in. If the empaths and the sensitive people are the ones who are like super spiritual and they want to, and they say, oh, I don't want my ego to get big. I don't want to be out there. I don't want to, I feel guilty making money. I don't want the power. And they're all quiet and they become people who are um, monks who go meditate on the mountaintop or we're introverts. And so all the sensitive people and we're quietly doing our thing. Um, the ones on the other end of the scale, the ones who are narcissistic, sociopathic, psychopaths, those are the ones that are climbing the ladder into leadership positions. Yes, that's been very apparent in recent times. And so, yes, so those are the ones. So then you have all the people in the middle who are easily influenced. So who are these people being influenced by? They're being influenced by the ones who are at that end of the scale. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say is that there are as many people on this end of the scale. It's not that the world has more sociopaths and narcissists and all. It's not that even though it appears that way, it's because we have allowed them to get into leadership positions because the empaths and the sensitive people hide mm -hmm. because they feel the world is too much for them. You need to get out and shine your light. Empaths are like, oh, I don't want to make money. Um, I don't want to be greedy. Oh, I don't, uh, you know, if I have enough money, I'm going to give it all away. No, you got to do start conscious businesses. You got to get out there. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I'm trying to say. You got to get in and influence schools to teach empathy to kids instead of teaching them competitiveness. Mm, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I love this. So calling all empaths, calling all highly sensitive people, calling all, I'm, I'm guessing 99% of you are listening to this podcast and most sociopaths wouldn't be attracted to my content, but please go out and get sensitive is the new strong. It really gives us, not only shines the light on just, you know, our motivations and our, but, but also empowers you through awareness and through tools to step up and into these roles so that we can know how to navigate and know how to step into leadership roles so that we can be the change that we want to see. Because yes. uh, clearly the other end of the spectrum leading the ship is, is not, not looking too it's, bright. <clears throat> it's not working for us. That's why as a, as a, as a race, we spend way too much money on technology to kill each other, way too little on helping and feeding each other. Yeah. Uh, Anita Morjani, I love you so much. Where can people find you and go hear you speak and, and get your book? Oh, uh, wow. So my book is available everywhere that uh, books are sold, like Amazon and, and so on. They can find me on my website, anitamorjani.com. I have also, I'm on all the social media channels like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. I also have a lot of videos on YouTube if everyone, anyone wants to learn more about, particularly about my near-death experience and what happened on the other side, but also about uh, how, to, how to be more aware of your empathy and your sensitive nature. So all of it, I have tons of videos on YouTube. But check out events. I have an upcoming event in Sedona. Yeah, so check out the details on my website or my social media. Awesome. Yes, and anyone you know curious about her NDE, the whole story, please read Dying to Be Me. Anybody that is on a cancer journey, I say read this because it is a beacon of hope and it's just, it's such a beautiful story. So thank you, Anita. It's so great to see you. Thank you, Kelly. It's always a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to The Heal Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for more empowering wisdom and inspiring healing stories. Oh, and make sure you hit the follow button on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answer you've been searching for. And if you feel inspired, we would love you to rate and review us so that we have the opportunity to reach more people. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram for some behind the scenes fun and more inspiration at at Heal Documentary and at Kelly Gorris. Thank you so much and be well. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.